0: You would please turn to the 8th chapter of Luke as we continue in this gospel. And while you're turning to Luke 8, let me say a quick word. Father, as we open your word now, as we have already prayed, uh, this uh, short piece, just four verses, but Father, they are significant. And I do pray that your Holy Spirit will bring the significance of these these four verses out, and help us uh, to understand them within the context in which they uh, are spoken. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, or chapter 8, excuse me, we're going to look today at at, uh, just four verses. 22 to 25. Very poignant story, very well-known story. I always uh, enter this kind of uh, uh, passage of Scripture uh, on the lookout, because whenever there are very, very well-known passages of Scripture, we tend uh, to assume that we know this, that, or the other about them, and we tend to... uh, take them for granted. So we're going to try to avoid that uh, today by looking at these these uh, four verses within the context of what we have seen. That is, that is it, it's impossible to overemphasize how important context is in understanding anything, but in particular, scripture. Uh, every passage of scripture arrives Within a context, and the context is always uh, extremely important in in seeing where it's it's going and why it it appears where it appears. If you remember from last week, as we've been moving through this chapter, uh, Jesus is with his disciples in a in a fairly uh, new way. Uh, he's teaching them. He's he's turned a corner of a in a. And a bit of, um, I, I guess you could call it turning a corner. That may be expressing a little too strongly, but last uh, couple of weeks, we've seen the introduction of parables. It's not the first time he used parables. Jesus uses stories and little vignettes all the time, some of which could be called mini parables, I suppose. It's, it's less important uh, about what, what the uh, specifics of a parable until you get to Luke 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus pointedly um, presents this parable of the sower. And what we saw was that this parable is talking about how the word is received, what kind of heart receives the word of God, what we call the Bible. And what we do with it is, is largely dependent upon what kind of heart we have when we encounter it. Very, very significant teaching. And what we saw last week is Jesus continues to uh, hammer away at the issue of the parable of the sower and the reception of the word. You remember perhaps uh, uh, last week, if you were here, uh, we looked at this notion of hearing the word and doing the word. And we talked about the reformational description of biblical faith through the word cat, K-A-T. In order to have biblical faith, I've got to have... The K, that's the knowledge of the scriptures, and, and that means Jesus Christ. Someone has to bring Christ to me. Somebody has to tell me, or God perhaps will lead me to a church. There, there is many, there's many ways that the Lord works as there are people on the planet. Uh, but some way or other, I have to hear about Jesus. Uh, Paul in Romans talks that wonderful passage about how are they going to no, if somebody doesn't talk to them. Uh, but knowledge, I, uh, last week, I remember in, in uh, Rick's message from, from Jeremiah, he he was emphasizing the fact that just simply believing isn't enough. I can hear about Jesus and then I need the, the A, the K-A-T. The K is knowledge, the A is assent, agreement. I need to hear about Jesus and perhaps look at all the other competing uh, philosophies and and all of these kinds of worldviews that are out there, and say this one is the true one. I assent to this. I agree to what I have heard about Jesus Christ and what I see in the Bible. But I've got to get to the T. The T of the cat is trust or conviction. I've got to give my life to the understanding I have of Scripture and this particular worldview among all the rest. All the rest come up short. Uh, They are not that which brings salvation through Jesus Christ. That was what Jesus kept pushing. That is an extension of the parable of the sower. What kind of heart do you have? Do you have the kind of heart that was receptive? Uh, So when we get uh, to this uh, brief passage today, we enter the question about what about trials? What happens, it's one thing for me to believe something when everything is running very, very nicely and well and easily, uh, all, all the, the planets align, and, and I'm just uh, having a wonderful time. But what happens when the floor drops out from beneath my feet? Then what happens to my faith? Then how do I assess it through the eyes of the worldview of Scripture? Uh, And again, I'm going to emphasize the importance of verse 15 of Luke chapter eight. Verse 15 says, as for that in the good soil, that is the seed that fell on good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. There are five concepts in that one verse. All of them are important. Uh, Hearing the word holding it fast, honest and good heart, bearing fruit with it, trusting, that's the T, giving it an influence in my life, but doing so with patience. Very, very important concept also. And we'll see all of these work out today in these four verses. With that, we move into the notion of uh, verses 22 to 25. Let me read them. Again, very, very familiar. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. He, Jesus fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he, Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. So a small little little event that has enormous implications for every Christian on planet Earth. Uh, it's It's a... seafaring story, if you will. It has to do with water, being in a boat on water. Now water, fascinating issues uh, throughout scripture have to do with with water and events such as this. I'll just go to the beginning of, of Genesis. The very beginning of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, And darkness was over the face of the deep. That's foreboding language. It's it's almost creepy. Uh, Dark, no light, darkness. And the the word void, what does that mean? Uh, Deep, the word deep resonates throughout the, the entire Old Testament. And the second verse concludes, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, Jonah. Jonah begins with a very similar event of uh, that which we've read in Luke chapter eight. Begins this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son, uh, son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And you know the story of of Jonah. Jonah's uh, ready to do the Lord's will as long as the Lord's will matches what he thinks the Lord's (laughs) will ought to be. And we've probably all been there. Uh, He's not going to go over to Nineveh. Uh, So he's going to try to run from the Lord, and that's, of course, not going to work well at the beginning of the... End of the third verse, he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it and, uh, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Interesting parallels. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God would give a thought to us that we may not perish. And the story goes on from there. But the point is, uh, being on the sea, being being in a boat on the sea, uh, can become something less uh, than a carnival cruise. That's what we're going to see today, and uh, of course, over over history, we're aware of of a lot of these kinds of events. April 15, nineteen twelve, the Titanic, uh, the unsinkable ship, sinks. Uh, anytime man starts beating his chest and and thinking he's made an unsinkable whatever. Uh, that's 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 a ship you don't want to get on. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, there's more than fifteen hundred people that die, and you know the the uh, again the foreboding of that movie. I think it's a very powerful movie uh, that's owned, I think maybe on perpetually on television, never seems not to be there somewhere. Uh, but very powerful story of of the sinking and the uh, the ominous threat of being out in the deep, uh, very very deep. Ocean. Here's another one, November 10th, 1975, Lake Superior. No, not an, an ocean anymore, but it's a very, very large lake. ship called the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, there was a man named Gordon Lightfoot who wrote uh, a very haunting song about the sinking. Of, it's called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I love that, uh, that rendition of his because it so well captures this, this haunting mood of this 730 foot long freighter. That's more than two football fields in length on a lake and it sinks. Loss of the whole crew. There was only about 30 people on that that ship. But here is a line from from Gordon Lightfoot's song, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. He says, does anyone know where the love of God goes? when the waves turn the minutes into hours. Haunting concept Uh, with that. Here's another one, October 30, 1991, The Andrea Gale, another very, very powerful movie called The Perfect Storm. A 72-foot swordfish boat, in this case, Gloucester, Massachusetts fishermen go out. Uh, What they encountered was a perfect storm, The, the coalescing of three very unusual weather systems that produced 100 to 120 mile per hour winds, 100 foot waves. That's a 10 story building. Sebastian Younger wrote that book, uh, The Perfect Storm, and he has a line in that book that says this, a mature hurricane is by far the most powerful event on earth. The combined arsenals of the United States and Russia do not contain enough energy to keep a hurricane going for one day. That's a true statement. Hurricanes are forces because they're over water. When you agitate water and you create waves, you're creating a power, in in Younger's opinion, and this is uh, backed up by science, uh, you create a power that is stronger than any other power on earth, stronger than nuclear weapons. Uh, in, anything you can can put together is dwarfed by a hurricane at sea. Uh, and, and we know when hurricanes come ashore, the the power they can do. The reason for all of this is because of the wind speed and the water combining. When the wind speed starts generating wave heights, the energy does not go up arithmetically. It goes up based upon the square of the height of the waves, which means that a three-foot wave, if you square three, you have nine. A 30-foot wave, if you square 30, you have 900. So the difference of power, of energy, of that water between a three-foot wave and a 30-foot wave is 100 times more powerful. It isn't just 10 times more powerful, 30 is 10 times three. It's 100 times more powerful. And that's the kind of scenario that we're bumping into in this very, very familiar, perhaps overly familiar, four verses about Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. Um, <clears throat> let's look at uh, at these verses again in the context of, of verse 15. Remember verse Verse 15 is is what we're keeping in mind here. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Again, that sounds wonderful when when everything is is going smoothly, but suppose you're in the boat uh, with Jesus and the question, of course, does your anchor hold in the midst of the storm? We'll look at these uh, four verses, verses uh, 22 and 23. Now, by the way, this, this is one of those events that occurs in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all have this event in them. Each one of them gives a little additional perspective and we'll look at some of those. Uh, Luke begins uh, by saying one day, Verse 22, one day he got into a boat with his disciples. Now the the episode, as it's discussed in Mark, says on that day, the same day as the parable of the sower, perhaps it appears to be so in in, uh, the gospel of Mark. Uh, Matthew adds at night. So it it may be at the end of that day. It may be at the end of a long day of ministry, in other words, and uh, these men, of course, are fishermen, Uh, but they're going to go and get on a boat uh, with Jesus at night. Jesus gets into the boat. What does that mean? All 12? Does that mean there's 13 people in this boat? If if so, it gives you some idea of the size, perhaps. Uh, It it certainly isn't a skiff. Uh, It needs to be large enough if 13 people are in the boat. Uh, It's not an insignificant boat, uh, and they go onto the Sea of Galilee and they're saying this in verse 22, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Now the Sea of Galilee is often called Tiberius Lake. Uh, it, it has several names in scripture, uh, but uh, they want to go across and Jesus says, well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go across to the other side of the lake. Now the other side of the lake is going to get them into the area of the gatherings. We're gonna see, uh, going to see episodes beginning in Luke uh, when that occurs when they're on different different territory, if you will. Uh, but when they set out, Jesus it says he fell asleep. Now again, some of the other uh, the, the Matthew and the Mark accounts say he gets to the back of the of the boat and falls asleep. Doesn't matter where. Uh, to these disciples, Jesus is probably extremely tired. So he goes back and falls asleep as they begin this journey. Now, these men have done this for their lifetimes. These, most of these men are fishermen, not all of them, but, but many of them. Those who weren't, I'm sure, were talking to those who were, saying, oh, is this okay? Can we just get on a boat and go across? Are we all right doing this at night? And they were, I'm sure, reassured. Jesus, however, falls asleep. When you get to verse 23, something starts going wrong. A windstorm, Luke says, came down on the lake. Notice the word down. We're going to get to that in a minute. And then in verse 23, they were filling with water and were in danger. So a windstorm comes down onto the Sea of Galilee. Waves are created to the point where they are coming over whatever the boat looked like. They're coming over the side. They're filling the boat up, AKA they're in in peril of sinking in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Interesting in Mark, Mark calls it a great windstorm. Waves breaking into the boat, according to Mark chapter four. In Matthew chapter eight, Matthew calls it, there arose a great storm. And the word he uses, the Greek word is seismos. It's it's where we get the word earthquake from, seismic. We hear today about seismic events. Comes from this Greek word seismos. That's how Matthew described something extremely significant and uh, perhaps even earth moving. Uh, So they're they're all adding uh, to these things. Now, let me... uh, briefly describe what I find to be one of the most fascinating parts of, the, of this planet on which we live, and that's the Sea of Galilee. If you've looked at a map of Israel, I know some of you have traveled to Israel. The far north, uh, you have a mountain. It's called Mount Hermon. It's 9,000 feet high. The Israelis have a ski resort there on the southern slope of it. The midpoint, the 9,000 foot point, is actually in Lebanon. Does Lebanon and Syria come and and the Israeli border meet uh, basically at the the northern end of the Sea of Galilee? Uh, The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles north to south, five miles east to west. So it's not a large body of water. That's why it often is referred to as a lake. But the Sea of Galilee, which is only 45 miles south of Mount Hermon, 45 miles south of a 9,000 foot mountain, the Sea of Galilee is more than 800 feet below sea level. There aren't many places on the earth that are below sea level. Uh, When you travel as as a tourist or whatever, when you get around the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, even worse, your toothpaste tube is depressed. It's squeezed in your suitcase because you're below sea level. There's more atmospheric pressure. Atmospheric pressure, we talk about the pressure at sea level. Atmospheric pressure means exactly what it says. The the total sum of molecular structure above you in the atmosphere is weighing down on you from gravitational pull. That's atmospheric pressure. When I'm at sea level, it, it registers a certain amount. If I go below sea level, which is rare, but you can do it in such places as the Sea of Galilee, I've got another 800 feet lower, so there are more molecules above me, the pressure is greater, and the toothpaste tube squeezes. Uh, the first night uh, we saw that, we thought, whoa, <laughs> somebody got to my toothpaste. Uh, who's been fooling with my toothpaste? Uh, it, so you've, you've got this, within 45 miles, you go from 9,000 feet elevation to a negative 800 feet 90 miles from that, you get to the Dead Sea. All of these things, Mount Hermon, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea are almost a vertical line, a north-south vertical line in the country of Israel. It's the beginning of what's called the Great Rift Valley. The Great Rift Valley is going to go from roughly Mount Hermon through the Sea of Galilee down through the Dead Sea out into the Red Sea which separates basically Middle East from Africa, under the bottom of the Red Sea, comes up again in Africa, and will move all the way to the southern end of Africa. It's one of the largest physical features on the Earth. The astronauts, when they used to buzz around the Earth, normally talked about seeing two things, the Great Wall of China and the Great Rift Valley. This is the beginning, where they are here. This this is very unusual topography. Now, here is what makes it germane to this story. The eastern bank of the Sea of Galilee, of this little bitty lake, is 2,000 feet cliff. So you've got a hole, basically, that's 800 feet below sea level, encompassed within, eight, within these 2,000 foot cliffs of, of the Syrian countryside. Those 2,000 foot cliffs have ravines in them where water will flow through those ravines and into the, into the Sea of Galilee. What those ravines create is the opportunity for winds to come off the deserts of Syria, go down into the ravines and empty and swirl in this little bitty lake. This Sea of Galilee is one of the most uh, convoluted pieces of real estate and therefore it has convoluted weather. What these disciples and Jesus are running into is very common and it comes like that and it comes out of nowhere and you cannot be prepared for it. You cannot predict it, but it happens and it happens often. That's what we're, we're talking about here. So the disciples, you figure, okay, these guys have reason to fear until you get back to, to that 15th verse again. Uh, Jesus has already instructed, specifically given these 12 men this parable of the sower. He's talked to them about four varieties of of soil and he's told them in verse 15, if you're in good soil, you hear the word, you hold it fast in an honest and good heart and you bear fruit with patience. Now that's not a very good uh, description of what's going through the behavior and the minds and the hearts of these of the disciples. They're afraid for their lives. Jesus is asleep. So what are they going to do? Well, that gets us to verse 24. It says they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. It would, it would just be wonderful if we had better idea of, of the interplay between those 12 men? Are they, were there some who were, who were saying, well, don't wait, don't, don't wait, he's, he's very tired. It's been a long, long day of, of ministry. He's been preaching and teaching to thousands of people. Uh, we're, we'll be okay. Or were they all panicked? Were they all frustrated? Were they all thinking we're, we're going to die? Uh, even the fishermen among them, perhaps. Mark four, interestingly enough, says teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's an addition to what we're reading here as Luke describes it, that is extremely important. That's a different kind of attitude. That's a different approach. Rather than bearing up uh, with a good heart and and patience and and bearing fruit patiently, do you not care? They're going to Jesus. They're, They're going to the God of the universe. Uh, do you not care that we are perishing? In Matthew 8, even a little bit more is added, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And in Matthew, Jesus responds to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So now you begin to see why these four verses, why this vignette, why this, this episode and the life of Jesus with his disciples is so important. He is testing them. He's testing them. He wants them to, to look into their own hearts uh, in the light of this parable that they have just understood. Because they were the ones that came to Jesus when he began with that parable. They said, "Unpack this for us. We don't. Why are you even speaking in parable?" And Jesus unpacks it for them. So now he's got them to this point and. And he's saying, where is your faith? As they say, don't you care? His response is, where's your faith? Oh goodness, so many, so many events in all of our lives, I'm sure where we've been in a similar position. Uh, decades ago, I had a job that required uh, travel by air, every, every week virtually. <coughs> And most airplane trips uh, back in those days, of course, it was it was it was fun to fly. Uh, most of the planes were not crammed to the gills, uh, and most of them generally landed where they were supposed to land in a manner that was fairly serene and predictable. But every now and then, every now and then, you'd be on one that, that uh, something. Uh, I two two of those flights. Uh, will stay with me, uh, where everybody on the plane started praying because we all thought, this is it. We're not gonna, this isn't gonna end well. Similar to, to this position. And at that point, uh, Jesus is asking each one of us, where's your faith? In the, in the uh, Luke version, he goes on in verse 24, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. I love that part. Uh, don't ever miss. What, there are many, many passages in Scripture where you will hit a calmness. Uh, you, what, maybe it's an agitated heart who becomes calm. Uh, maybe in this case, it's it's an event with with the physical world in which uh, these men existed. Uh, that the threat, the waves, the, the sinking boat, all those things. Jesus has done away with, and there is calm. Again, put yourself on that boat and wonder what in the world, who spoke first? Uh, they, they were so, they woke Jesus up. He's calmed the sea, and, uh, and now there's, there's a calm. Who's, what would you say if you're one of the disciples? Is it an oops moment? Uh, should we have had more faith? Are they starting to connect any dots What's going to happen? Well, Jesus speaks in verse 24. And he says to them, where is your faith? Again, Jesus here in Luke brings out this connection to faith. They were afraid, verse 25. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Chapter seven of Luke. Verse 49 says, Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? You remember how, again, the the context of these four little verses and this little vignette on the Sea of Galilee is very much in keeping with where these men are being taken by Jesus. They've seen him forgive the sin in that context in chapter 7, uh, the woman who's who's come into the dinner party of the Pharisee and she anoints Jesus and he forgives her of sin and they're saying, who is this who can do this? Here they are again. This time, Jesus is handling the physical universe in which they uh, they live and they're saying the same thing. Who then is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey it. These four verses uh, are are just so powerful to each one of us because I know we've all been there. Uh, that feeling just before surgery, uh, you, you've crossed the Rubicon, you've agreed to have this thing, you realize that, that you're putting your hands into uh, an arena that, that is far less certain and guaranteed than we tend to assume it to be. Uh, but it's something that is so serious that we're willing to be put under. Uh, We're willing to be put asleep, if you will, uh, in order for someone to do something to us and we hope that that something is right. And it always appears that way. I don't, I would assume at least that never in the history of mankind has a surgeon come out of surgery with anything but it really went well. I doubt this guy that's going to come in and say, you know, if I'd have gotten more sleep last night I probably wouldn't have done what I did. Uh, (coughs) And that's frankly a tribute uh, to the professionalism and the expertise of of, uh, the 21st century medical community. However, the point being, I'm putting myself into, into a vulnerable position that I have no control over whatsoever. There are all kinds of events. And when those events conspire, the question we need to be considering is where is our faith What should it be doing and speaking to us? Can we bear fruit with patients in the midst of an environment such as as a windstorm, a surgical procedure, the doctor saying we've got some terminal, uh, on and on and on, uh, family issues. They just never cease. So here are a couple of insights. Uh, that I think we can take from this, uh, eight or so. There are more than that, but I'm going to give you eight insights that come from these four verses that are all life-bearing, good-to-remember aspects of what we've just seen in four verses. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah. He's God. He's controlling this universe that he has created. All of that, of course, uh, throughout the Old Testament is is emphasized uh, and certainly in the New as well. Uh, Jesus is already in the presence of these same 12 men, he's already raised someone from the dead. So they, they should begin to have faith in his ability and a better understanding of who this is. He is the Messiah, he is God. Second lesson, he's sovereign therefore over creation and therefore over every storm of life. There is nothing that you and I can go through that Jesus is not there with us in the boat. He is there through every single storm of life. Here's a third one. Jesus himself illustrates perfect faith in his father. He's asleep. He knows what's about to happen because he's going to make it happen. Now you can say, well, he's got a, he's got a, away, a get out of jail free card because he also knows he's going to stop it from being terminal. Uh, true to an extent, but he's he's back in the back of the boat fast asleep. He's given himself to his heavenly father. He illustrates perfect faith. Here's a fourth insight from these verses. Uh, as I've already alluded to this, one, he is with us in the boat of life. This event, of course, is is you know, you get into people who teach and preach on this passage, and I am guilty of this. I've already done it uh, in front of you today. We tend to get lost in this, this incredible story of the Sea of Galilee, the topography, the, the, the wind, blah, 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 blah. That's not where this story is found. That is not what's going on here. Here's what's, uh, Here's what's going on. God will place us under trials and tribulations, in order to grow our faith, that is the story of these four verses. It doesn't have to be the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't have to be waves. It, it could, they could be up on a on a the Mount Hermon. They could be falling off the edge of Mount Hermon. Uh, they, we could be in airplanes. We can be anything and everything can come into our lives. But the point is it will come into our lives because God will see that it does because that is the way faith grows by encountering difficulty and challenge and handling it correctly. We're never going to handle it perfectly. It, is, I, it Don't take away from this little four verse vignette that you need to be perfect, that you need to be uh, so steadfast that everything, uh, you, you're, you're an immovable rock. That would be the goal. And that, of course, uh, hopefully, as we keep this uh, march through life as a Christian, that will be something that we are better able to do. Uh, but uh, it, the point is not. Uh, I'm going to leave you out there on the edge of the cliff and see how you do. And then I'll either thump you into the valley below if you fail. Jesus is with you and with me in every single storm of life. And you are in his hand and you will go nowhere that he does not ordain you to go. That does not mean that every story has a wonderful, cheerful ending. It does not mean that everything is going to go the way we wish it would go. It does mean that it will go in the best way for every one of us here, even when we do not understand what that way means. That is what these, uh, these three are about. God will place us under trials and tribulations in order to grow our faith. There's another sort of subtle implication from that fact. And it's this, we can be in his will and still be in the center of the storm. That is a, that is a again, a sort of tangential, a little bit subtle, But it's very important to understand just because I am in a storm does not mean I am no longer in his will. It may mean and probably frankly does mean exactly the opposite. His will is to take me into the storm, to take me into the waves, to help me see the the peril that appears to be in front of me and to say, now what are you going to do, Christian? When Mark, in his uh, chapter four of Mark, when he has this uh, this story, he says, um, as we alluded, do you not care that we are perishing? Can you imagine the disciples coming to Jesus with that question? Do you not care that we're perishing? If Jesus didn't care, would he have given up all of the glory he shared with the triune God to come as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, if he didn't care, would he be training these 12 men, putting up with their insolence, their impatience, uh, their, all of the aspects of sinful human beings? We would be the same if we were there. Would he put up with that? If he didn't care, would he have gone to the cross to die for his children? If he didn't care, Would he be coming back in glory to claim all of his children in a new created heaven and earth, storm-free? If he didn't care, would he get into our boats? And again, we've each got those boats and we'll have more of them. They're national disasters. We've seen some over the last week. Uh, People lost their lives in, in tornadoes and so forth. They're sinful disasters. Those are more important. Jesus is in the boat. He is in your life. You are in his. And nothing will ever part you from him. And the outcome will be perfect. And that calls forth. Bearing good fruit with patience. From good hearts. Hearts that he has given us. Doesn't mean life is easy. It doesn't mean it was uh, ever meant to be that way, but it does mean that you're in the hands of of a Savior who does much more than care. He loves in a way that we will never fathom and will never, ever leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Father, uh, these uh, four little verses, um, perhaps we know them as, as an isolated story, and it is a fascinating story. It's an interesting story. Many interesting sidebars to it. But Father, help us to see it within the context and the flow of this chapter, this larger picture that Jesus will test us. He will test our faith. He will grow us uh, through giving us greater and greater challenges. If we want to build up a muscle, we can't do it by sitting on a couch. We've got to stress that muscle. We've got to, to push it a little bit further than it's been before. Carefully to be sure, but keep pushing it, keep moving it. Uh, Motion is lotion, not only physically, but spiritually. Father, we will be tested, but help us understand, Father, you do much more than just care. You love us and you are there in our boats with us this moment in time and forevermore. And we thank you for the wonderful story of building faith because that faith resides in you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we pray these things in Jesus' name out of great thankfulness. Amen.